This morning's scripture reading comes from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. We started a a new series uh, last week uh, on the life of David, the single most documented person in ancient history. And before we get into the life of of David, we're really going to begin with precursors or aftermaths of David, beginning with the prophecies to whom David himself points. David, one of the greatest, if not the greatest king in Israel, um, there are prophecies since David's day that point to a greater king. So we, there are lots of them. So we, we have to understand the importance of the narrative of David. Hebrew prophets, you know, they predicted someday that the Messiah would come. And Christians believe that the Messiah, this king, is Jesus, Jesus Christ. David being the greatest king. One of the reasons why he is um, such a great king is that he protected the weak. He represented himself, the weak and the oppressed. Why? The biblical word for peace is shalom. And if you know anything about that Hebrew word, it's a very holistic word. It doesn't mean just the absence of hostility or war, but the presence of justice. And so the the book that we're reading today, or the book that we're reading from today, from the book of the prophet Amos, is all about that. It's all about the justice of God. Why? Amos, Amos, he prophesied in the 8th century BC. It was a time... When two, at the time, two of the greatest global powers in their day, Assyria and Egypt, they kind of start falling by the wayside for various reasons. They become weakened as kingdoms. And as a result, it kind of enabled Israel to kind of shoot up and gain control of the trade routes that makes a country rich. Back then, it was all by sea. Merchant, uh, mercantile um, exchange was all by sea. And so that type of exchange to gain control of the trade routes would make or render a country incredibly wealthy. And, and as a result, this meant enormous wealth, enormous prosperity for a country that for a long time was very, very small and weak. All of a sudden, Israel sprouted up and all of that money went where? Like it does today, to the professional classes and the lower classes, the working classes were left out. So there was a huge gap that started to build between the rich versus the poor, between the upper class and the lower class, between the professional class and the working class. And what Amos talks about here, he addresses the issue then of justice. We need to learn this. If you're new or visiting Metro Presbyterian Church, um, we I've really been building here a congregation, gathering the congregation to really discuss and confront and address the issue of justice in the city. 
So there are three things we're obviously going to learn from this text. One, the meaning of justice. Two, the heart of justice. And lastly, three, God's hope, God's promise of justice. The meaning, the heart, and the promise, which gives us hope of justice. First, when we talk about the meaning of justice, Amos He gives us a particular example of injustice here. If you look in your call to worship, I'm going to be straddling between those two texts this morning. If you look at the call to worship, verses 4 to 6, Amos says, he starts out and he says, representing as a prophet of God, hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Amos is giving us here a particular example of injustice in his land. We're trampling the needy, we're doing away with the poor. How do they do that? Because he starts out and he says, here, those of you who are doing that, how are they doing that? Well, they're skimping the measure, they're boosting the price of their goods, They're cheating people with dishonest scales. Then he says, they're buying the poor with silver. They're buying the needy for a pair of shoes, selling even the sweepings of wheat. Now, what is he talking about? First, the term silver is a synonym for a great loan, a loan with a huge debt. Now, if you think about what he says is, these people have gone into debt for a pair of shoes, why would, some, why would somebody go into debt for a pair of shoes? You've you got to think about this. If you're not making good with your debts, back then there was no such thing as declaring bankruptcy. You went into servitude. You worked for the person. In essence, if you fall into a huge debt, you actually became a slave to that person that you owed money to until that debt was fully paid off. It could take a very, very long time. Here's a situation where the professional classes had such enormous buying power. You know, the cost of living, in essence, in that area grew, grew and rose to such uh, a high level that merchants could charge prices so high that even the bare necessities of life, a pair of shoes, for the working classes, it was so far out of reach for them that they had to take loans. These items became so expensive that over the course of time, the working classes couldn't afford them, the bare necessities, so they had to take loans to pay them off. And as a result, for a pair of shoes, these people became slaves. You know, it's a metaphor. He's basically saying you know, he's, he's using what was going on in the day. And, you know, this is a poem. It's a poem and a prayer. If you're not making good debts, you fell into slavery. These people went into debt buying shoes, buying food. It drove the working classes deeper into servitude. That's injustice, he's saying. That is what God hates. This growing distance between people who have a lot and people who don't have much. And what are they doing here? They're still boosting the prices. They're cheating people. They're cheating these very people who are in debt with dishonest scales. The debt is just mounting and increasing. You know, there are people out here in the city whose debts are so great, they can't ever catch up. It's suffocating them. They can't breathe. And so he's saying that distance, that gap, that's injustice. Here's why. You know, Mosaic Law... In the Bible, the Old Testament law was structured. This is a prophet. What is, a, what is the sole role of a prophet? If you have a king, and the king of Israel had particular ways, a, way, a particular way of life, 
Very, very different from worldly kings. That's why this is a precursor to understanding the narrative of David. Kings, when God chose a king, that king had to live modestly, much more modestly than the kings surrounding them. That king was more humble than the kings surrounding them. That king had an understanding that he was fighting for the weak, fighting for the oppressed, fighting for the poor, unlike all the other kings around them. This king did not hoard wealth, but gave out wealth. This king helped the poor, helped the oppressed, set them free. He represented them. That's what God intended. When the king violated, well, that was one of the major roles of the king, all in line of establishing God's law, establishing not not just fighting injustice, but establishing justice, establishing law, God's law. And in doing that, while they're straddling these two calls of the king, whenever they violated it, God will call up a prosecuting attorney, a prophet, to charge the king and to charge the land. That's really what the role of the prophet was. That's what Amos was doing in this time of prosperity. He's saying this distance. Why? Because the Mosaic law was structured in a way that Israel could avoid any of this from happening. I can't really go into this in great detail, but the Mosaic law was structured. This Old Testament law that you read in the Old Testament, all these laws, it was structured to uphold the oppressed, to help set them free. So they had things like the Sabbath year. And the Sabbath year, every six years. And the seventh year, it was, a, it was a year of rest. It's where you cancel debts, set slaves free. Then you had this concept of the Jubilee year, the 50th year. It was a, year, it was a Sabbath of Sabbaths. It was a year, an extra year that was intended to let the land pretty much grow wild. So all debts, even the land would be set free to rest. Mosaic law was designed, all sorts of laws designed, preventing the great distance to grow between the professional class and the working classes. But of course, that Sabbath, that type of Sabbath was never, ever honored. The people ignored it. They disobeyed it. Why did they disobey it? Why do we ever go to work when we're called to rest? The rest at least that sanction for us is, becomes inconvenient. And that's what's happening here. God hates that. He, he says this is injustice. This is absolute injustice. You know, a lot of times we work because it, we continue to work. We don't want to uh, experience any type of bodily or spiritual rest. Why? Because we, we do that because it, it prevents progress. We want to just continue to proceed. So we're constantly thinking about work. We're thinking about our lives. We're thinking about the future. We're doing that constantly. God says that is injustice. All through the rest of Amos, he talks about the injustices. Amos chapter 2, Amos chapter 5, you see this everywhere. You're trampling on the poor. You're denying justice. He says, I know your offenses. You take bribes. You deprive the poor. All through the book of Amos, these are the phrases you read. The most famous text of Amos is in chapter 5, actually. Even though you bring burnt offerings, I will not accept them. Away with the noise of your worship songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Rather, he says, let justice roll down like a river. Let righteousness roll down like a mighty stream. That's where Martin Luther King Jr. came in his famous I Have a Dream speech. That's where, that's where that phrase comes from. It's a very famous part of his speech. God is speaking against unjust social structures. That's injustice. Now, what does justice mean? It's very important. When modern people think, when today's people think about helping the poor, we become very, very disconnected. 
some of us right here may be very disconnected with what I'm saying. We're saying, ah, well, what Donnie's talking about here is generosity. So if I don't volunteer, if I don't give, then it's because I'm stingy. That's what Donnie's basically going to say. That's what the preacher is going to say. That's not how the Bible sees it. God doesn't see our lack of generosity as stinginess. He sees it much more serious. He calls it injustice. He calls it sin. What's the biblical understanding of justice? I'm going to give you an example. I can't go into it too much in detail, but I'm just going to give you a very simple example. Today we have hundreds of people, hundreds of children today in our city, ages you know, 10 to 14, who, um, who have no trajectory in life. They're, by the time they're 17 or 18, they will be completely illiterate. They won't be able to read nor write. They have no marketable skills. They could not be hired to even do the basic chores in any type of uh, uh, job out there that's offered to them. And when you try to explain this, it's very, very complex, and I'm not here to simplify it. It's very, very complex as to why that is. In fact, we're still trying to figure out why that is. Um, Old-fashioned liberals, they say, well, it's the fault of the system. It's the system's fault. We have a corrupt system, a very broken system. Old-fashioned conservatives will say, well, it's the fault of the family. These communities and neighborhoods, they lack values, family responsibility. You know, a lot of them come from single-parent homes. Um, Today, a lot of scholars and most thinkers really in this situation, if you're an educator, you probably understand what I'm saying. We realize that there's probably a complex combination of both. But, you know, whether you are an old-fashioned liberal or an old-fashioned conservative, or whether you believe that it's a mixture of both, it really doesn't matter. Nobody here says it's the children's fault, it's the kid's fault, it's that 10-year-old's fault, it's that 14-year-old's fault. We say, you know, maybe it's the family, maybe it's the system, but it's not their fault. It's not their fault that they were born where they were born. And really what we're saying is, you know, if these children were born in my family with the sheer privileges that I came into, that I did not earn on my own, I just was born right into it, they would probably have a 300 to 400 greater times greater chance of living or having a successful life in terms of economy or socially, maybe even politically. And that's what Amos here is talking about. We get to experience tremendous opportunities that are really by sheer grace. But it's that unequitable distribution of resources that creates that gap. That we who just experienced it by sheer grace and are brought into tremendous opportunity and privilege cannot extend that to those who absolutely would not even fathom that type of opportunity. It's that equitable distribution of resource. So if you have resources, if you have the opportunity and you don't share, Amos is saying, God is charging you and saying, you are unjust. And that's the reason why if you go to the Old Testament, you see that contrast. Jesus, even in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, God calls the righteous and the wicked. He says, you who are righteous or you who are wicked. What is he talking about that? In the Old Testament, English, English translation of the Old Testament, the old English translation of the Old, of the old Testament, the word righteous is always translated to mean just. You who are just versus the wicked. Why does, why does God delineate or define between the just versus the wicked? Old Testament scholars will tell you that a righteous person is someone who sees his resources all of his resources 
to belong to the whole human community around him. That a righteous person is brought up in seeing that what I have has been given to me by grace and it's not my own. I did not earn it. it was re- it's really by sheer grace. So it's meant to be practiced in grace to the whole community. God defines a wicked person in the Old Testament as someone who sees his resources as his own. It's used to justify him. And so a just person says, this is all a gift. It was given to me for the benefit of the human community. You know, it's a privilege. It's a calling. That's the response. So I'm going to plow time and my talent and my personal and financial resources into my community, into my church, into my schools, into my social structure. A wicked person is someone says, no, this is mine. I earned this. I made my way. I made my luck. I pulled myself up from my bootstraps. Amos is talking to them. And he's saying, you are unjust. God is charging you. That's the meaning of justice. Let me ask you a question. Why are you in your current job? Why are you living in this city? You could have lived anywhere. Why are you living close to a great city? Even if you're in the burbs, do you know that just by living near the city gives you and your businesses privilege and opportunity? Most of us move to the city for the schools and the jobs that are really going to increase our options career-wise. That's what we're going to do. Most of us move into a big city because the types of people that we want to connect with, meeting people, it's really going to move, ahead, move us ahead career-wise or socially, relationally. Most of us move to a big city or move into a city because there's something connected with the city that we can incorporate the coolness of living in the city to improve our self-image or our view of ourselves. You understand what I'm saying here? I play with, I work with, I socialize with people who are just like me. Really, we've come to fatten our own value. That's what we do when we live in a big city. But if you develop a vision of justice, you will know that God is charging you and God is calling you. He's calling you that you know that you're called to do more. That's the meaning of justice, the meaning of justice and injustice. Now, what is the heart of justice? Again, if you look at the call to worship, if you look at the beginning, verse 5, you know, which I just read, verses 4 to 5, he describes something very interesting. He says, you who trample on the needy, you do away with the poor of the land. He says, when will the new moon be over that we may, we may, we may sell grain? When will the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Now, what is the Sabbath? What is the new moon? He's talking about worship. Times when people are celebrating what God has done for them, who God is and what he's done for them. Now, I'm going to kind of set the stage for you, right? You know, because what God is not saying is, he's not saying that there's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with selling grain. There's nothing wrong with marketing wheat. But I'm going to set the stage for you. These people are sitting in the middle of their worship service. Literally in the middle of their worship service. Back then, that was an ordeal. You went to the temple to worship. You went to the synagogue to worship. And your body, your body literally is demonstrating that position of worship. You're kneeling or you're prostrate when you're hearing the word. 
and, and they're kneeling, they're facing forward, they're in that pose. Their body is literally worshiping, but their heart is consumed with making profit. They can't wait to make profit. So they're sitting in worship. What are they praying about? They're praying about their business. They're thinking about making money. They're strategizing. They're saying, I can't wait till this is over because then I can do the things I really want to do. I can't wait till the service is over because then I can go where I really want to go. I can't wait till church is over, in in essence, so I can focus on what's going to make me who I am. That's what they're doing. When will this be over? I can't wait. In those private moments, Amos is saying, God is saying, I will not forget this. So he literally says that. I will not forget this. Verse 7, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. He says, that's what you're doing. I, I see you. I will not forget. I know it. I will not forget. In those private moments, think about it. Archbishop William Temple, very, very famous phrase. You know, um, he says, your religion is what you do with your solitude. And I'm going to kind of break that down. Some of you um, have read Prodigal God. I think it's actually explained in the Prodigal God. That's where I got it. Um, it's, it's kind of like this. When you don't have time, when you don't have to think of anything, when your mind is being taken to think by environment, that's what Archbishop William Temple says. Basically, I'm going to translate that. When you're not at work, when nothing's taking hold of your mind, where does your mind go? What does your mind habitually go to? What do you do most what do you most like to think about? What do you most enjoy daydreaming about? What gives you the most comfort to fantasize about? Archbishop William Temple is saying, that is your God. That is your religion. If you're in worship service, if you're anywhere for that matter, and you can't help but think about the life that you're going to live, the home that you're going to purchase, the career path that you've kind of laid out for yourself, You can't help but think about that deal, that if I just make this deal, it's going to really turn my corner, me and my corner. It's going to finally establish me, take me to that next level. You're thinking about what it's going to look like when I finally lose that weight. Oh, I'm going to put a lot of, I'm just going to pour my body and soul into losing weight. When I do, I can't wait. What will I look like? And how will that do, what will that do for me? What it's going to be like when you get that person in bed with you? If I can just get that person in bed with me, you know, what will it do for me? That is your God. That is where you place your hope. That's where your dreams reside. That's where your nightmares reside. Because your nightmares are really the counterpoint, the mirror, the the negative reverse image of your dreams. What's going to happen if something were to just happen to my children and it hurts them? Oh my gosh, if my children experience what I experience, the pain that I, ex- I harbor in my life, and that becomes a nightmare to you, what will you do? Oh, you're going to think about what I can do to protect my children, protect them from the horrors of life. That is your God. And Amos is saying here, that is the heart of injustice. That's why we hoard That's why we do everything to protect ourselves. It's not like you hate the city. You embrace the city. A lot of us embrace the city. But why don't we have a burden for people in the city? It's because our main burden is who? 
our own, ourselves. We're self-absorbed people. We're living self-absorbed lives. You know, and in this era of tremendous communication, incredible knowledge, what are we using it for? Ourselves, to feed our pleasure, to feed our, our lives. Formal religion on the outside is, here I am at church and I'm obeying. But on the inside, my real God, my real trust, my real salvation is not the grace of God. It's my achievement. It's my wealth. It's my power. It's my status. It's my relationships. That is the source of injustice in the world. Verse 7, the Lord says, the Lord says, I swear by the pride of Jacob, I will, not, I will never forget anything they have done. Martin Luther, great theologian Martin Luther says, he calls this the curvature of the soul. The curvature of the soul. The twisting of the soul. The curving of the soul. The pride, the self-centeredness, the self-absorption. We're focusing on our achievement. We're focus- focusing on, on our self-sufficiency as opposed to gratitude. Living out of gratitude because of the grace of God in our lives. He says that when you do that, when you're focusing on your self-reliance and your self-sufficiency, what's going to happen is it's going to lead to injustice. Because you just need to produce. You need to outdo people. You need to up, you know, you, you need to keep up with people. You need to win. You need to win. You need to do all these things. Why? To get a sense of worth for yourself. That's why you study that extra amount. Because you know, then you can outdo. Then you can keep up. That's why you work that extra day. Even though your body, your soul, everything around you needs to rest. You know, we do that because we need to keep up. You know, one-seventh of your weekly intake is a lot. To give that up and let it rest is to give up one-seventh of what you can earn. Earning power, right? That's a lot. Amos is saying that's the heart of injustice. You know, what's the reverse? I mean, if the if former religion is outwardly worshiping, but inside worshiping something else, in your heart of hearts, your real trust is not in the grace of God, but your achievement. If that's a sign of injustice, if that's the heart of injustice, then the heart of someone who is just is what? I recognize I am a sinner saved by grace. On one hand, I'm a sinner. On the other hand, I'm saved by grace. If you just focus on, on I'm just saved by grace and forget about I'm a sinner, then you will not be broken. If you're focusing on I am a sinner, but you're not living in light of gratitude and grace, then you will just be broken. You see? But if you are a sinner, broken, saved by grace, redeemed. We're all broken, but redeemed. Matthew chapter 25, very classic case study. On judgment day, everybody's going to come forward, and they're waiting for a verdict. They're waiting for, they're waiting for Jesus' judgment. And what does Jesus say? He says to one group, you know, I was hungry and I was thirsty, but you fed me. I was homeless and I was an immigrant, but you gave me a place to stay. I was naked, but you clothed me. I was naked, but you clothed me, he says. I was sick, but you gave me medicines. I was in prison, but you visited me. So please come into the kingdom. But then he turns to another group of people, and he says, I was hungry and I was thirsty, but you did not feed me. I was homeless. I was an immigrant, but you never gave me a place to stay. They're going to say, Jesus, when do we ever do that? When do we ever see you in this condition? I mean, honestly. And Jesus says, 
When you fail to do it to any of these people, when you fail to, to serve the homeless or the immigrant or the hungry or the thirsty or the sick person or the person in jail, you fail to do it to me. He doesn't say, when you fail to do it to those people who believe in me. That's not what he said. He said, when you fail to do it to people, anybody who's sick, who qualifies as that? It's anybody who's sick. Anybody who's poor, well, who qualifies? Only Christians? No, it's anybody who's, who's sick, anybody who's poor, anybody who's homeless. And here's what he's saying. He's not saying the way to have a relationship with me is to do these things. That would be religion. But what he's saying is the way that I can tell, he says, if they're waiting for the judgment, right? Here's how I can tell you have a relationship with me. When you're connected to them, your heart's going out to them, not to feed your sense of worth, right? But because you've been given so much, you're living out of sheer grace, And so you can empty yourself because you're never going to be empty. You're pouring into them because you've been poured into. Oh, he says, then I know. If you don't care, if you're not involved, he says, well, then you can think you're a sinner saved by grace. You can think you have a relationship with me, but you don't. You don't know the first thing. That's the heart of justice. So we've talked about the meaning of justice. We've talked about the heart of justice. Now, what is the promise or hope for justice? This blew me away, you know. In spite of the fact in verse 7, he says, I swear by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget any of this. You know what that means? You know, in those days, you only swore on things that would never change. You picked something that would never change. I swear by the sun. I swear by the moon. I swear by the stars, right? You picked on things that never changed. This is God's way of saying, my promise and my word are good. He says, my word is strong. I will never forget any of this. So when he says, I swear by the pride of Jacob, he's actually being very, very sarcastic because he picks to swear on the pride of Jacob. What he's saying is this, there's nothing more unchanging than the selfishness of the human soul. I'm going to swear by that. There's nothing more self-centered than a human heart. There's nothing more unjust than the human heart. He says, I will never forget that. Injustice will one day be punished. I'm a just God. I will never let that go. Just as insensitive and selfish and unjust as we are, I will make good. I will never forget that. I can't let us trample, you trample on each other like this. It's got to come to an end. So what is the hope? In chapter 9, what we read in chapter 9, God makes a twofold promise. And the twofold promise very quickly comes to this. He says one day there will be a returning king and one day there will be a redeeming king. A returning king and a redeeming king. A returning David and redeeming David. First, the return of the king. He says, I'm going to restore David's fallen ten. He's talking about the dynasty of David. He says, one day there will be a descendant of David. He's going to be born. He's going to rise up. And he's going to bring in my kingdom. He's going to restore my temple. He's going to restore real worship, true worship. Jesus says, tear down this temple. I will raise it up again in three days. And he says, there my worshipers will worship 
in spirit and truth. That's why, you know, people believe that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Why? Because Bethlehem was the city of David. That's what they were waiting for. Everybody was waiting for that. But how? Did this king come through might? Did he come through subversion? He says here, you know how all the nations of the earth are going to be called by my name? That's what he says here. He says they're the ones that are going to be in the kingdom. He calls out Edom and in this text. He calls out the land of Edom, the Edomites. The Edomites, you know who they were? They were the ones who were always at war with Israel. They were always fighting. They were always hostile. But this king who's going to return is going to bring down all those divisions. He's going to tear down those social structures. There'll be no more national boundaries. He's going to tear down the races. He's going to tear down the cultures. He's going to tear down those warring tribes. But this returning king is going to bring it all down, all the hatred that exists between groups, all the biases and the prejudices that exist between groups, the ethnic groups, the ethnic classes, the the races. They're all going to be healed by him. He says that's the returning king, but he's going to be a redeeming king. How? Verse 13, he says, The days are coming when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by one treading grapes. New wine is going to drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Now, that's crazy. I didn't understand what this means. And when you really think about it, it's amazing. Back then, even now, here's, here's the structure. It's an agrarian culture. And here's how it worked. You plowed up ground in October. You plowed up ground in October. You sowed the seed. You scattered the seed in December. So you plowed it up in October, you know, and then in December you would sow the seed. And then in March, it's four seasons, in March what would happen is then you would reap the harvest. The first, fruits would, the first fruits would come in the early parts of spring and then you would reap the harvest. And then you would tread grapes in June. So that's the cycle of the year, if you had a vineyard that is. So you plowed up ground in October, in the fall. You sowed seed in winter. In March you reap the benefits. You're raking it in in, in March. And then in June, you're turning that into wine. You're trading the grapes. Here he says, God says, how would you like to live in a world where it's now October, where you should be plowing the ground? But as you're plowing the ground, the reapers who are reaping the harvest, they're saying, you know, they're, they're, they're raking it in. They're saying, I, I, I'm not done yet. I'm still raking it in. Stop plowing the ground. We're, we're not done yet. And so the, he says the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. The reapers are still reaping. The plowers come and say, uh, we need to work here. And he said, no, no, no. I still got a lot more to go. There's so much. There's so much abundance. There's so much wealth and richness. He says, please don't do this. We're not done yet. It's going to continue on and on and on. He says the reapers are not done harvesting produce that came out in March. It's still going on through October into December. The plowman has come, but they're still reaping. Now, example, what does this mean? You know, when you're working, and work is very unproductive, and work is very oppressive, why? It's because the labor that you put in is not equal to the product. We call it paying our dues. You're paying your dues now because you're hoping that one day you'll be the guy that's making somebody else pay their dues. You're going to be oppressing them in a sense, right? That's what's happening. So what happens is when you're that guy that's working and labor, you're pouring sweat and blood and tears sometimes, and, and, you're, and you're doing that, and the, the harvest is very, very small. The benefit is very, very small. Maybe you get a pat on the back. You might eke out a bonus, but a lot of times it's just going to be a thank you, and then it's on to the next oppression, right? That's how it works. Last week I'm talking about spreadsheets. This week I'm talking about oppressive bosses. That's how it is, right? That's really how it is. Your boss is oppressive. No matter how hard you work, 
You always feel down because you're only as good as your last victory, and those victories are so small. That's injustice. You know when work becomes exciting? When you're actually building something, you're creating something, and it's productive, it's flourishing. In the beginning, you're paying your dues, and it's very oppressive. You're just looking for that day, right? When you're just raking it in, and one day it happens. Let's say it happens. Your business starts taking off, and you're just raking it in, and it's just flowing. It's just flowing. You know, you do that, a lot of times you go to a restaurant, and you go to certain business models in a restaurant, you sit there, and you're like, man, these people, this simple business model, you guys say that, right? These must be raking it in. I mean, they must just sit there in beds of money and just swim around, right? They're just raking it in because all they're doing is this simple concept, and they're just making tons of money off of it, right? They're reaping the harvest in October. And, and you know, Amos is saying there's going to come a day when the wine shredder in June is not finished, even though it's winter. That's what he's saying here, Right? It's winter and it's still coming and they're raking it in. What is he saying? Everyone would say, I don't know of a single place nor a single person who lives that way where life is that abundant or that fertile. Because if there was, there would be no more hunger. If the land is that fertile for all, there will be no more hunger. There will be no more poverty. There will be so much wealth, wealth becomes obsolete. There's so much excess that classes would disappear or the socioeconomic classes would disappear. There'd be no scarcity. You know what that means? That's the end of capitalism because there's no more greed. It's the end of socialism because there's no more oppression. It's the end of racism. There's no more bias. You would never have to fight for money. You'd never have to fight for power ever again. There's no more territory in that sense. Life is so abundant, so rich, so fertile, so full. God says not only that, but new wine is going to drip from the mountains. Wine is going to be dripping from the mountains. And it's going to, some of you like that. You know, you like you know, wine. You're like, wow, new wine. It's going to drip from the mountains. You know why? You know why that's important? Because in the mountains, all it was was cold, thin air. You couldn't live up there. The land was, har- the land was harsh. So all that you really got from the mountaintops was cold water, refreshing water. Right? That's the most you could get. But he says, one day it will be wine flowing. Rivers of wine flowing dripping from the mountains, flowing from all the hills. It's that rich. You know, wine in the Old Testament, in Amos' time, represented joy. Why? Because when you get a little in you, joy, right? Dionysus was the god of joy, right? What is he talking about? Here's a king, when he comes, he doesn't just deal with our social problems. He's actually healing the world physically and socially and economically, There's no more hunger one day, no more poverty, no more disease, no more sickness, no more war, no more death, no more racism or class struggle, no injustice. Secular secular people believe that the whole world is one day just going to burn up one day and there's going to be nothingness in the end. So everything in life becomes meaningless. You might as well just hoard everything, right? Every other religion believes that one day the material world is either just going to be an illusion or it's just going to pass away and we're going to just escape it into some consciousness or some subconsciousness or superconsciousness or something like that. Only Christianity says that there's hope for salvation in this world. This world will be renewed. Heaven doesn't just become a place where we escape, right? Heaven is actually, Revelation 21, read it if you don't believe it. Heaven, the city of God comes out of heaven onto the earth. It fills the earth. 
It renews the earth. Only Christianity has hope for the material world. You know why we know that? Because Jesus Christ, in infinity, in eternity, came into time, came into the world and became material. The, the infinite became material. He suffers, he dies, his body is raised again. It's not like he went into a consciousness and comes down as a ghost. And when the disciples see him, you know, they're like, who is that? Because I'm scared to death. That's not, they're scared. But he says, come and touch me. He has a glorified body, a new body. Only this faith, only this faith says the eternal future has in it ordinary life. We're going to be eating. Jesus tells his disciples, one day we will drink together. We will dine together. We will feast together. There's going to be embracing and music and dancing. We're not just going to be floating around without bodies. We're going to have perfect bodies. This ordinary material life. No other religion offers this. No other religion thinks that's even possible. And because the material life is important, justice today is important. How can you be changed from that? How can we escape, you know, the judgment that's due? God says, I will never forget this. All right, you're going to have to get this. Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, the apostles read this end, this passage, Amos chapter 9, and they say, this, now I realize, is about Jesus. How is it about Jesus? Jesus did not come into the world as a prophet to bring judgment. He came to bear it. He didn't come into the world as a general on top, subverting people. He came into the world as what? A victim of injustice. He came into the world as one who was oppressed. You know who was sold for silver? It was Jesus. Was sold for silver. Jesus was bought then. Jesus contained the debt. 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was trampled on. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was dealt with dishonestly. At his trial, if you learn and study his trial, every single component of his trial, as you read in the Gospels, every single component about the trial was, had some form of illegality to it or corruption associated with it. Everything from testimony to trial, he was a victim of injustice. So you know, he was born in a manger, He was homeless. You know what a manger is? It's a feed trough for animals. There was no inn in the the town that would house him. No place that could take him in. He became homeless from the start. In other words, Jesus, Jesus didn't just suffer for us on the cross. He suffered with us all the way through. The Bible says that God actually, that God actually experienced injustice. So when Jesus, so when you ask Jesus at judgment, when did I see you thirsty? When did I see you naked? When did I see you as a prisoner? Are you serious? Jesus says, I became stripped of my clothes on the cross. I was thirsty on the cross. I was a prisoner, a victim of injustice on the cross. The only one person in the world, in the history of mankind, who ever deserved justice received condemnation and was dealt with unjustly so that you who deserve condemnation can receive justice. God looks at you and says, I am for you. You are the oppressed and I will set you free. We can be redeemed. We can be healed. 
Even our bodies, one day, will be given new bodies. We will be set free. You know what death is? In, in any other religion, death is something you abhor, right? But we can be set free from death, be given our true selves, to do things. You think you have potential today? Look at your potential tomorrow. Your beautiful selves. This is why justice is a sign of the heart who has been saved by grace. If you understand that you are a sinner saved by grace, you're only saved because of Jesus. The only one who's truly rich, who became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. When you see him, how rich we are, everything he has has been given to us. Gosh, when you see that, then you can look at the poor. And when you look at the poor, you know what you see? When you look at a broken city, you know what you see? It's a reminder. You're looking in a mirror. You see how poor we are, how broken we are, and how healed we can be. That's the heart. If you're the kind of person that says, you know, I'm closing. If you're the kind of person that says, you know what, I worked very hard for what I have. It's mine, man. And you're, through your systematic way of teaching up here, you're trying to make me feel guilty. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. You know. But if you have been shaped by the gospel, the brokenness, the conviction is there. It's there. You would be broken by that. If you're the proper person that says, you know, but I worked for what I have. I earned what I have. This is mine. You know, they should work for their, themselves. They should get jobs. I'll be happy to help them get jobs. By the way, that is a part of justice. We don't do that either. We are going to do that here because it's a one, that is a service we can offer here. All of us, we know how to get jobs. We can help them get jobs. We're going to do that. We're going to help connect them. We are serve, we serve as a great middle ground for that. But if you're saying, I worked for what I have, I earned what I have, these people need to figure, out, figure that out for themselves because I had to figure it out. Nobody helped me. You know what? You're middle class in spirit. You're high class in spirit. But you know what Jesus says? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember that. Sinners saved by grace are poor in spirit. So will you remember that? Metro Presbyterian Church, over the course of the next two years, this year we're building the strategy, we're doing a lot of study, a lot of demographic study. We don't want to just enter into our city here and feel like we have something to offer them with with a sense of superiority. We're going to connect with the city organically. We're going to hang out in their bars, hang out in the cafes, study here, reside with people. People are moving in more from our community uh, into this area to encourage the community, connect with the body, to figure out what they really need. We're going to become them. We're going to suffer with them. You know, this area, one of the greatest gripes of the East Falls community, because people love East Falls. They move out of the city. It's like the first stage. You know why it doesn't become the second stage of life for young couples? Because when you have children, up to the point where your children go to school, East Falls is great. It's right by Kelly Drive. Lots of great places to eat. Good city vibe. Um, and it's a, it teaches our children a lot. But when they get to that age where they go to school, it's the most broken educational system in the city. So they flock, they flee from the city here to go into the burbs. So it becomes a gateway to the burbs, but it's depleting the area. What can we do here? Now, we have our ideas, but we need to learn. We're going to connect over the next several years. 
I'm not asking you necessarily to have a specific heart for East Falls because East Falls is so important. It is. It is a very, very big part of what's making Philadelphia grow. But I'm asking you to have a heart for the city. You know why? Because in the city, there's more people per square inch than the suburbs. There's more people per square mile than suburbs. And um, Dr. Bill Crispin, who was uh, one of my mentors, famous church planter here in Philadelphia, says, God loves the city. You know why? Because in the suburbs, there are more plants than people. In the city, there's more people than plants. And since God will always have a greater heart for people than he does for plants, he will always have a, heart, a greater heart for the city than he does for the burbs. Now, it doesn't mean that, you don't, you know, if you're living in the burbs, it's not to make you feel guilty. It's to empower you to have a heart for the city. You love the Philadelphia Eagles? I love the Philadelphia Eagles. I love the... I love the uh, Philadelphia 76ers, right? We cheer them on. It's our, it's our team, right? You know why? It's because it's our city. Let's embrace it. This is a very practical way of doing that. Connect. Will you join us as part of our vision to do that? Over the next several years, we're going to develop not only a strategy, but a series of campaigns. And as we grow as a community, a lot of our resources will go out there, despite the many needs that we may have here. That is a commitment. That's why we're here. We believe that the prosperity of the city is what we're here to do and commit to. Will you join us in that? Let's pray.